Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to John chapter 6. I'm going to read from John chapter 6, verses 25 through 40. John chapter 6 is a difficult passage to read and interpret. In fact, his own disciples say right there in John chapter 6, this is a hard saying. Jesus is explaining to them how it is that they have life. What does life consist of? Spoiler alert. It consists of Jesus. John chapter 6, verses 25 through 40. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Amen. Jesus is in a conversation that resembles a wrestling match. The crowd shows up and he says to them, you're just here because you want free bread. I, he fed the 5,000 the day before, you know, the loaves and the fishes and the whole story there. And they, they've come back, and he's like, you're just here for a free lunch. Like, knock it off. You guys are missing the whole point of what I'm trying to do here. And they say, okay, well, how about you teach us to do the works of God? And he's like, what are you talking about? I am the work of God. And they're like, well, why don't you give us bread like Moses did? And he's like, what are you talking about? I am the bread that Moses thought he gave. And then they say to him again, well, Lord, give us this bread always. And finally, exasperated, he exclaims in verse 35, I'm the bread. That's the whole point. How was I able to feed the 5,000 with those few loaves? Because I'm the bread. You are looking for the wrong thing. And again, it's easy for us to sit here and go, how are they so dense that they don't get it? 
And then, of course, the point by which John has recorded this story is because we are slow to get it. We look at the meal we'll eat this afternoon and we'll forget that Jesus is the bread of life. We'll look at the snacks that we will eat this evening and we will forget that Jesus is the bread of life. We will worry about tomorrow. We will worry about next year. We'll worry about our money. We'll worry about our health. We'll worry about our lack of sanctification. And we'll forget Jesus is our life. The giver of our life, the sustainer of our life. With this in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 9. Our sermon this morning is from Proverbs chapter 9. And I'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. This is Solomon's conclusion to his introduction to his Proverbs. Chapters 10 through 31 will actually be the Proverbs. In fact, if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, real quick, what do you see as the first four words? The Proverbs of Solomon. So it's really in chapter 1 that the Proverbs really get going from 10 to 31. Chapters 1 through 9 were really Solomon's introduction to what a proverb is and why we should even bother with them. He introduced his son to wisdom. Who is she? What will she do? How do you get her in your life? And here he concludes and pulls all his ideas together in one powerful metaphor. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. You are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. A foolish woman is clamorous, she is simple. And knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house. On a seat at the hot, by the highest places of the city. To call to those who pass by. Who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple. Let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding. She says to him. Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Amen and amen. 
In her classic novel, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen tells the story of how Elizabeth Bennet comes face to face with Lady Catherine de Bourgh. I can only say it with David Bamber's voice, right? Isn't that like stuck in your head now from the 1995 BBC? Lady Catherine de Bourgh of Rosings Park. She comes to break up this rumor of alliance between Mr. Darcy and Miss Bennet. And she does so by pointing out the great weakness, the Achilles heel of Elizabeth Bennet. Elizabeth defends herself by asserting, he is a gentleman, I am a gentleman's daughter, we are equals. And Lady Catherine de Bourgh answers forcefully, but who is your mother? And it stings. You see, the reality is, though our last names often come from our fathers, and much of our inheritance and legacy comes from our fathers, the vast majority of our manners and personality come from our mothers. It's a dramatic and important question. Who is your mother? In fact, it's, it's the first act of faith we witness in the garden where Adam and Eve have just been cursed. And she's not Eve yet. She's just the woman. And when God says her child will one day crush the head of the serpent, that first promise of salvation, Adam responds by renaming her. You won't be woman. You'll be Eve. That is, mother. And from then on, the promise is embedded in this metaphor of motherhood. Sarah with Isaac. Rebecca with Jacob. Jacob with his twelve children. Indeed, we see in Matthew chapter 1 that the story of Jesus is woven through this great genealogy of all these sons and fathers. Oh yeah, except for Rahab who's thrown in there. And the wife of Uriah, who isn't even named by her personal name. She's named the wife of Uriah. And so too is Ruth, the Moabite. In Revelation 12 and 17, we see that the world exists between these two great women. The mother of the faithful and the mother of the wicked. Solomon picks up on this theme. He picks up on this motif, this metaphor, metaphor of motherhood. And he holds it out for his son at this climax in his teaching. And he says, my son, the word of God gives life. Do you guys see the relationship? Just as a mother gives life, the word of God gives life. Do you know why our culture struggles so much with motherhood? And why it is perhaps the most hated office in all of America? Because it is a kind of self-denial. It requires death of mother for life of child. Every mother here is sitting there going, yep. It is hard to be a mother, and yet it is a high and holy calling, a metaphor for how God has related to his people, how his word has related to his people. And so in our text, Solomon teaches his son that he should move from his mother to his wife, 
And as he moves from motherhood to manhood, he should embrace a woman of wisdom. Solomon does not here mean literally his experience, although that's true of young men. He means metaphorically his faith. That his faith, which has been under the tutelage of the scriptures, must now be expressed as he himself becomes a teacher. Beloved, Proverbs chapter 9 is the end of this introduction. Solomon's son is now a man. And it is time for him to believe the word of God and to act on that word. To express in his adult life the truths that he has learned. And so Solomon sets before him this last lesson. Notice verses 1 and 2. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out in the highest places of the city. Solomon introduces his son to a woman he has already introduced him to. A woman he calls wisdom. And she is a busy woman. She is a hardworking woman. Young men, if you find a woman like this, marry her. Notice in verse 1, she has built her house and hand-hewn her pillars. This woman knows her way around a chainsaw. This woman knows her way around a hammer and a screwdriver. This woman, wisdom, has built her house and hewn out seven pillars. She didn't build a little dugout in the prairies of Oklahoma. She built a palace. But what is more, she has slaughtered her meat and mixed her wine. Not only is this a woman capable of building her own house out of her own two hands, she's running a beef operation and a vineyard. She's raising cattle and growing grapes. This is a hardworking, diligent woman who has furnished her table. She is well laden with the riches of the earth, having carefully cultivated her agriculture. This is a wise and hardworking woman. Does she sound familiar? I'll give you a hint. She reappears in Proverbs chapter 31. The end of the introduction, chapter 9, parallels the end of the book, chapter 31. This woman who is wisdom is an excellent wife for Solomon's son. And in these images that he presents to his son, Solomon invites him to be wedded to wisdom. My son, even as I have invited you to grow up under the tutelage of your mother, I now command you, be united to the woman wisdom. By saying that she has built her own house, Solomon teaches his son to live with wisdom. Enter her house. This is extremely countercultural. Because in this ancient society, men built their own houses and brought women into them. But Solomon says, my son, do it differently. In fact, do it the opposite. Let wisdom build the house and live in her house. Let wisdom run your life. Let wisdom be the boss. This wisdom of which Solomon speaks is something that must show up in our lives. The way we think, the way we speak, the way we act. We must live with wisdom and be governed by wisdom. But secondly, Solomon says to his son that her table is well laden. Wisdom is something on which we must feast. Wisdom is not found in a fast food restaurant. 
I mean that literally and metaphorically. A burger and fries is calorically, you know, supple, but it is nutritionally deficient. Not so the table of the woman of wisdom. Her table is well laden and well provisioned, and so must be eaten slowly. Let me show it to you in chapters 10 through 31. What size are our parables? Uh, Proverbs. They're, they're, they're mouth size. They're, they're, they're portions. Par- Proverbs, by definition, are tiny. They are to be digested slowly. They are to be enjoyed thoughtfully. This is what wisdom does. She opens up this palatial feast and says, Come and eat and drink and be satisfied. My friends, let us learn this lesson. As the children of Solomon, if we are to live a life of wisdom, inhabiting the palatial house of wisdom, we must learn to listen to the word of God slowly. Now I know, I grew up in New York, I talk very fast, and I throw lots of words at you, but that's not what I mean by listening slowly. It's okay that I'm a fast-talking New Yorker. What I mean is to think long and hard about what you're hearing in the Word. To return to the sermon later today and this week. Indeed, to return to the Scriptures day after day in private devotions and family worship. To be one who feasts upon wisdom in a slow and methodical way. My friends, let me connect the metaphor with the application. Too many of us read our scriptures like it comes from McDonald's. Fast and devoid of nutrition. We need to slow down. And we need to feast upon the word of God as if it were a seven course meal and the clock did not exist. We need to slow down and digest the the joy of the wisdom of God, the Word of God. She has set out this beautiful palace. Let's explore it. She has set out this glorious feast. Let's eat it. Indeed, everyone and anyone can do so. For Solomon says to his son in verses 4 through 6, that this lady wisdom has not only built this beautiful palace, has not only enriched it with wonderful food, but she has called everyone. She has sent out her maidens to multiply her message. She has gone to the highest places of the city to extend the reach of her voice, that everyone everywhere should know and come. She says to the simple and those who lack understanding, again, wisdom is not a fault of the mind. It is a fault of the morals. If we are unwise, it is not because we are unintelligent. It is because we are unloving and unhumble, lacking in humility. It is because we need to submit in reverence to the teaching of wisdom. She sends out to everyone, it's okay if you're poor, come and learn. There's no cost. It's okay if you're starving, I have plenty of food, eat to your heart's delight. It's okay if you're afraid. No one here will hurt you. It's okay if you've wandered long and hard and far in sin. There is no sin for which this grace is not the answer. Indeed, in verse 5, she points us to the content of her message. Come, eat my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. By reducing the great feast to these two elements, 
Wisdom points us forward to the Lord's Supper, which we will partake together of next week. This bread and this cup represents the life-sustaining nature of her feast. And indeed, she says in verse 6, forsake foolishness and live. If we feast upon wisdom, we live. If we walk in the way of understanding, we live. There is life in this palace. There is life in this feast. And that is because this palace and this feast are metaphors for... You guys knew this was coming, right? You guys have been listening to me for eight chapters. Jesus. Jesus is the one to whom wisdom is pointing. A life enriched with the goodness of God is a life feasting upon Christ. He will pull all these metaphors in His own earthly teaching upon Himself. He is the bread and the cup. He is that supper represented in that supper. He is the way of understanding. He is the truth that sets us free. He is the life that we live in everlasting life. All who are simple and lack understanding come to Him. As He said in the Gospel reading we had a moment ago, I will by no means turn aside any. All of you come and you will never be denied. Have you ever showed up at a party too late and the food was gone? I've never done that. (laughs) Have you ever showed up at a party and all the food was there that you didn't like? I've done that. And you know that awkward sense of hunger as you casually try to avoid the table and pretend that you're having a great time? Those things don't happen in wisdom's house. For Jesus is a feast to the soul. So rich, so nourishing, so delicious that there are none who dare sample the delicacies of heaven and then deny the glory of that grace. To put it in other words, for a far smarter preacher who predates me, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found hard and not tried. This is the challenge before us. Wisdom opens up her house. She says, I have for you great treasures. Come and feast. Come and delight your souls on Jesus. The question is, Will you come? Will you come? This is answered in the two principles that Solomon lays out in verses 7 through 12. Beginning in verse 7, Solomon in 7 through 9 introduces us to principle 1. That the one who accepts this invitation and comes to the palace of wisdom and feasts upon wisdom's treasures, that is Jesus Christ, is the one who is already wise. Isn't that weird? Only the wise will accept an invitation to wisdom's house. That seems striking. In verses 7 through 9, beginning in verses 7 and 8, Solomon lays out two sets of parallels of three. He's done this often for his son. It makes it easy for his son to understand. First, he says, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame. He who rebukes the wicked harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hates you. That's that first set of three. Three statements about not wasting your efforts on those who are incorrigible. But then notice three more statements. Rebuke the wise man and he will love you. 
Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in knowledge. These three are not only parallel statements, but they flow to the center, which is verse 8. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. See, the fundamental difference between the one who accepts wisdom's invitation and the one who rejects it is the condition of one's heart. The hater of wisdom will never go to wisdom's house. The hater of wisdom will never receive the invitation to wisdom's feast. This scoffer, this wicked one, is only interested in one thing. It's something you all are very familiar with, I'm afraid. Self. The scoffer, the wicked one, the hater of wisdom has a priority. It is self. He is the one who wants to protect himself and so never receives instruction. He wants to go through life unchanged and untouched like a deity floating through the world. And so he will not receive correction. The wise man is not like this. Deep down at the very center of his being is love. He loves others. He loves God. He loves the world. And as a result, he is willing to change. He is willing for himself to be transformed. Willing for the self to be broken down. Willing for the self to be to nothing. And this is how he gains in wisdom and in learning. You see, the tragic principle that Solomon sets before his son is that if you are to be wise, it will cost you your very self. The road to wisdom is the cross. It is self-denial in Christ. And those of us who love ourselves, who seek to enthrone ourselves, indeed, we live in the culture of the sovereign self. I marvel that in 1973, Christopher Laugh said, we are building a world of mirrors, an America of narcissism. I think 1973, you haven't seen anything, man. Wait 50 years. We are a society of the sovereign self, and it is not surprising that we are so foolish. Unwilling to accept correction, unwilling to walk in humility, unwilling to be the ones who are changed, we do not grow or learn. The one who will come to the feast of Jesus Christ and be satisfied is the one who will love and who will find love deep in the heart, willing to give self for the sake of others. What is it that will save your marriage? What is it that will save your friendship? Self-sacrificial love. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. Self-sacrificial love. It is at the very foundation of all good societies. I've often marveled as I look at different institutions, you know, education institutions, businesses, churches, they fail. And people will ask me, why did that fail? And I'll say, because no one loved it. No one loved it enough to give his or her life for it. My friends, why do some churches thrive? Because somebody loved it. Do you know why this church is still here 126 years later? Because for 126 years, people in these pews have loved, with self-sacrificial love, 
this church. That is what it takes to sustain a society, to grow in wisdom, to enter into fellowship. So where do we get the love? Okay, so it's love that's got to be at the center, a willingness to deny myself, a willingness to change and to grow and to mature, a willingness to receive from wisdom the teachings of Jesus Christ. Where do I get the love? Solomon says in verses 10 through 12, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The love for humanity, the love for truth, the love that leads to self-denial begins with knowing God. When I see Him as He is, when I see Him as God is love, when I know Him, the loving God, full of fellowship and friendship, full of faithfulness and goodness, then I fear Him. That is, I reverently rejoice in Him. I fear Him in this attractional manner. I fear Him in a way that I want to know Him and worship Him. And His knowledge multiplies the years of our life. It is this fear of God, this reverence of God, this centeredness on God that increases our lifespan. It is literally true in this earthly experience that if we reverence God, we can live longer. See the fifth commandment. But what is more, it is spiritually and ultimately true in Christ. That when we reverence God, we live eternally. The days of our life are multiplied without end. And the years of our life are added ceaselessly. For in Christ, that is in the knowing of Christ. In the reverencing of God in Christ, we have eternal life. And so Solomon concludes for his son in verse 12. If you are wise... You are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. Solomon is no longer speaking to his little child. He's no longer addressing his infant, his toddler, and saying to him, You know what? Learn from your parents. You know what? Depend on your parents. He is now speaking to his mature adult son. And he's saying, From now on, son, if you will be wise, You'll be wise for yourself. And if you will scoff, you will bear it alone. My friends, you enjoy in this place many beautiful marriages. And you enjoy in this congregation many beautiful families. Many beautiful friends. This is a good church. But you know what? When you die and stand before God in glory and He judges you, it's going to be you and Jesus. Or just you. Are you ready? Do you know the fountain of wisdom? Do you know the fear of the Lord? Solomon says to his son, Don't you dare leave my house without understanding. You've got to love Christ. You've got to love Jesus. You've got to know Him as life itself. You've got to hold on to Him. Because I can't hold on to Him for you. Because I can't sacrifice myself for your sins. He did. Solomon says to his son, this is the essential truth I want you to know before you leave my house. Reverence God. 
know Christ. Be united to Christ in faith. This is how we enter into this feast. This is how we have this heart of love. We know Jesus. Solomon, having in the center of our chapter, set down these two principles. That it is the loving, self-sacrificial sinner who discovers wisdom. And it is the one who sees God in all of His grace and love in Christ who is willing to so love and self-sacrifice. Solomon then suddenly returns to his metaphor. He's laid out the Lady Wisdom and her work. How she teaches us about Jesus. How she feeds us Jesus. But now he turns to another woman. There's another option, my son. You might not need to live in the house of Lady Wisdom. You might not be wedded to her. And have in your life this covenant union, this marriage of love and mercy to wisdom. Instead, you could be married to Lady Folly. She's foolish. She's clamorous, boisterous, loud, obnoxious. She is simple. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and on the seat of the high places in the city to call to those who pass by. Notice the contrast between the two. What is wisdom all about? She's hard at work. She's building a house. She's preparing a feast. What is Lady Folly doing? She's sitting around. She's not at work. She's not getting anything done. She's not diligent and excellent in her labors. In fact, she's loud and boisterous. She's noisy. She's filling the air with her sound, but the world is without her work. She is simple and knows nothing. She is ignorant and foolish. She does not understand the way of the world or the way of God. And there in her seat, she calls to those who pass by, those who are straight on the way. She seeks to waylay those who have purpose and to lead them to death and to destruction. This is a warning to us. We live in a world in which Lady Wisdom is hard to find and Lady Folly lives on every corner. In fact, I... Most of us have Lady Folly living in our purse or pocket right now. In fact, we have the echoing, clamorous, boisterous call of her words at our fingers' touch. And we can immediately access the great internet with all of its foolishness. And we can immediately fill our minds and our hearts with all of her boisterous, simple, know-nothing calls. No wonder it's so hard to read our Bibles. No wonder it's so hard to feast on the riches of wisdom. She sits by the door and in the high places. She occupies every available space so that no one can escape her. In fact, the only escape from her is to be impervious to her. Is to be one whose heart is so rooted in the love of God in Christ that we are deaf. To her siren song. To be so enamored with Jesus that her offerings are of no interest. Notice, friends, what she offers. Whoever is simple, turn in here. Whoever lacks understanding, she says, come. Same words as Lady Wisdom. This parody of wisdom. This pretense of womanhood. She offers stolen water and bread eaten. Do you remember how Lady Wisdom got her feast? She worked for it. 
She earned it. She built her palace. She raised her cattle. She grew her grapes. Not so, Lady Folly. No, she steals her water and secretly distributes her bread that she might not have to share it generously with others. This sinfulness she labels as sweet and as pleasant. And as much as I want to race through and just present this as an awful truth, here's the sad reality, my friends. Stolen bread is sweet. Stolen water is sweet. That's why we sin. We sin because it satisfies. Not ultimately, not lastingly, but it tastes good, it feels good. We indulge the self, we indulge the appetite because it seems sweet in the moment. It is pleasant in the experience. There is a truth to what she says to us, and yet the truth that she leaves out is in verse 18. He does not know that the dead are there. Her guests are in the depths of Sheol, are in the grave. Yes, stolen water tastes sweet, but it'll kill you. Yes, bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but it'll put you in the grave. It tastes good, but it'll destroy you. Have any of you heard of the old trick of using antifreeze and leaving it out in a barn to destroy rodents or anything else? Do you know what antifreeze secret power is? It smells and tastes sweet. And it will eat your guts right out of your body. So too with sin. So too a life lived with Lady Folly. Where we marry ourselves and unite ourselves to sin and to selfish indulgence. We partake of this delicious feast that destroys us, that kills us, and we perish. And there Solomon leaves it. Now, as a late postmodern American preacher, I would prefer that Solomon left on a high note and a happy note so that I could go on sabbatical knowing that I had left you with this cheerful reflection. But Solomon is wiser than I am. And he knows that your great temptation this afternoon and this evening will be to go back to that feast of sin and folly and to eat again from that deadly poison that your soul and Satan so often serve together. And so he ends with this warning that sin gives birth to death. And so, my friends, we need to receive Christ instead. We need to receive Christ as the one wisdom delivers to us. Let's connect the metaphor. You see, Solomon offers to his son these two women. Who will you wed? To whom will you be united? Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly? He, of course, doesn't mean the female you choose as your marriage partner. He means the lifestyle in which you will live, the world in which you will have it, the belief system you will embrace. And this picture becomes clear in Revelation chapter 12, where the wisdom, this woman, this mother, gives birth to the male child Christ, who is delivered from Satan's power 
and rises up to be the white-throned king who rides in glory in Revelation 17, crushing forever the whore of Babylon, Lady Folly. You see, my friends, Solomon would ask you, his sons today, who's your mother? Are you a sibling of our Savior, born from the same mother, born from the wisdom of his word and the work of his church? Dear saints, the word of God gives life. Indeed, the word of God births life we might say, to keep the metaphor, receive it. Receive it attentively. The Word of God gives life. Receive it attentively. Please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for this great wisdom. We give you thanks for our Jesus Christ, who is here offered to us and Pray that we would receive Him now from His Word. That we would put our faith in Him, trust in Him, and walk in His ways. Oh God, turn us away from ourselves and toward You. Touch our hearts by the power of Your Spirit. That we would this day receive Christ and rest upon Him alone. For this we pray in His name. Amen.